Can everyone hear me from the back row? Excellent. All right. Good. Okay, so tonight uh, we're going to be talking about understanding hell, clarifying misunderstandings and misconceptions. It's funny because when Peter asked me if I wanted to speak, I, I was like, well, I don't know what to speak. And he said, well, whatever you want. I said, no, okay. So for some reason I went and picked this. It's such an easy subject. And because it's such an easy subject to talk about, it makes it difficult as well. It's, it's, yeah. Anyway, Shakespeare wrote in Henry IV, part one, he wrote, Oh, if men were to be saved by merit, what hole in hell were hot enough for him? Now, Shakespeare wasn't a theologian, but he was absolutely spot on about one particular issue. I'm sorry, two issues. Because, first of all, no deed that we do, as far as merit's concerned, no matter how great or good that we do, nothing can save us from ultimately going to hell. Basically, it means that we are absolutely unable to save ourselves. Now, the second point that Shakespeare brought up in Henry IV is that hell is the final destination of all sinners, and it is a hot place, which is why... Talking about hell and heat in the middle of winter is not conducive to this message. We should be talking about this on a 45 degree day. Anyway, so before we talk about hell, let's talk about what it isn't. Okay, so this presentation, we're going to be coming at all angles and, and even talking about is God fair? So we want to, we want, because, you know, with all the objections towards Christianity, one of the biggest ones is talking about hell. Say, so, yeah, oh, so if I don't believe what you say and I don't follow your God, I'm going to go to hell. And it's like, you know, and it's like, well, that's basically right, yeah. So, so, but, but to be able to talk to these people about this is really good if they're going to stick around and talk. So, so let's let's dispel a few misunderstandings. Let's talk about what hell isn't before we talk about what hell is. Now, the first misconception, um, there's four that I can think of, four big ones. There are others, but the four big ones. The first one is is that hell is a place where the devil has dominion. Now, John Milton's book Paradise Lost. There is this. Um, when the devil is, is cast into hell, he says the famous line, better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. But the problem is, is that hell is God's domain. God made it and God rules all of his creation, including hell. So, so this is, you know, from, from this book, this is uh, an error. We've got um, number two is that um, hell is supposed to be a place where the devil resides. It's a place where he lives. It's a place where he can to and fro from. But that's not true. When you go to hell, there is no coming out of hell. There is a way in. There is no way out of hell. And the Bible is totally clear on that. We'll get into that in a minute. But Satan has never been to hell. Now, when we watched that movie a few weeks ago, War Room, that was really good. And I enjoyed watching that film because it showed the power of prayer. And I think we can all testify to a lot of that stuff that we saw in that movie that we can um, relate to in our own lives. Uh, but there was one thing that the woman said when she was, she was casting the devil out of her house. She said, go back to hell. The devil's never been to hell. And that, again, that's a common mis- that's, you know. And look, giving her the benefit of the doubt, she was probably, you know, she's, she's just new to the whole thing. She hasn't read a Bible. She doesn't understand. Her theology is not completely accurate. But she said something like that. And that kind of irks me a bit because I've heard that before as well. People saying, you know, you know, go back to hell. It's like, well, he's never been to hell. It's not where he resides. Once he goes, he won't be coming out. That's his final place. Okay. So um, the other one, and this is a really popular one. I've heard this one when I've been speaking to people. Um, and this is popular among non-believers. They say that, that hell is a place where sinners can go with their mates. There'll be beers. There'll be strippers. There'll be parties. And we'll have a really good time. So... You know, that's another one I've heard. But the thing is that the whole idea of friendship 
is a blessing from God. There are no, hell is a place that is devoid of God's blessing, so there's no friendship there. And as far as having fun, there's no idea of fun in hell. All that's been removed. So, again, so if you want to believe them, that's fine, but I'd rather take God's written word and say no. No, that's not what it's about. Okay, um, another one is that hell is temporary. It's a place where if you go and you really suffer and you spend a lot of time you know, digging in the pits and, 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 and doing what, you know, and hopefully God will see the contriteness of, of your, of your, of your um, sorrow and your, your sin towards him, then maybe you might earn enough points and you'll maybe either get a second chance on earth or better yet, you can go straight to heaven. But the Bible doesn't speak about redemption from hell. Once you die, that's it. So there is no redemption from hell at all. Um, there are other ones. There's one I've heard, um, and you've heard this one, hell is a place on earth. It can get hellish on earth during war times, but it's not hell. It's not the same thing. And another one I've heard, and this has been coming out of a lot of evangelical uh, preachers of late, um, Clark Pinnock, he's one of them actually. I don't like naming names, but anyway. But there's this annihilation view where after a certain amount of time of suffering in hell, that... God will just do away with you. There'll be oblivion. You'll be annihilated. There'll be no more left of that sinner. They're gone. But the problem with that view is that there is no biblical support for it. In fact, quite the contrary. And second of all, to say that, that there is an annihilation view is to almost say that there is a place where God will send you that even he can't get to you. There's no such thing. There's no place that God will ever send you that he can't ever reach. So the annihilation view doesn't work. And, and it robs God of his, of his omnipresence as well. He is everywhere. He is all-powerful. So, so that's not going to work either. So, so there are other views. But again, the annihilation view is becoming popular. And it shouldn't, but anyway. So let's talk about what the Bible clearly reveals about hell. Now this is the question of our concern. Because when we learn about hell, we also learn about the one who made it. And why he made it. So... Let's talk about why hell was made. That's, that's, I think, the best place we should start. Matthew, if you've got your Bibles, feel free to flip to these, but Matthew 25, 41, because I'm going to read all this out to you anyway. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay. So here we have an explanation of, of why hell had been created in the first place. Okay? It was a place of eternal condemnation that was designed for the devil and his followers, okay? um, his angels, his demons in the first place. Remember, Satan and his followers sinned before we did. Okay? So this was the place designated for them. It was never intended for us. The God already knew we were going to fall. God's already outside of time. He knew, but that's not why he originally created this place. That's not what its design was. It was for them, not for us. Matthew, and we've got some more um, things that appeal to that. In Matthew chapter 8, 28 to 29, you'll know this story very well. When he had come to the other side of the country of the Gergesenes, you may have something written different. I'm reading from the New King James. There met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So the demons obviously already know. They know about this place that's been set aside for them. And that's why they were so terrified when they came to him at this point. Luke, in his gospel, about the same story, reveals something else. In chapter 8.31, it says, And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. So the demons know that this place has been originally manufactured for them. 
Okay, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Did you realise that this is the last verse in the Bible that mentions the devil? That's it. He's not mentioned after that. And um, there's not even... You know, we've only got two more chapters after that. But, but the thing is that that's his final rest. That's his destination. That's where he goes. And that's what this place was designed for. Okay? So... The Bible is clear about why it was created and it's also clear about the destiny of all those who are unbelievers. As far as people who are concerned, who, who, all of us who are sinners, where we go and why we go. You see, God has dominion over all life and God takes supreme responsibility for all life that he has created as well. Abraham said in Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of the earth do right? And the answer is... Yes, yes he will. Jesus says in John 5:22, for the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. So we know now specifically who Abraham was talking to, but Jesus went on to say, most assuredly I say to you, this is still in John 5, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Isn't that great? Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. This is Jesus still talking. As I hear, I judge. And morally, he says this, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So the identity of the judge who, who grants pardon or grants condemnation has been identified as Christ. Now, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, or patient, if you will, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, Jordan alluded to that this morning during his talk. Now, this basically tells us that perishing was not God's idea. He was not willing. It was something we chose, and we see it right from the beginning with Adam and Eve, that, that the fall was not something he desired, but it was something he allowed, as we see the wheels began in motion for our redemption, as we see in the Old Testament. He was not willing. Romans uh, chapter 6, 25. Now, we, we like to talk about um, uh, John three sixteen, which is great, but this is, this is just as good to remember as well, just as important to remember. In Romans six twenty three, for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord in other words I have earned death I have spent the majority of my life showing God how unfit how unqualified and how unwilling I am to spend an eternity with him how unwilling I am to want to have a relationship with him every time I sin I demonstrate that to him and that's what I've done. I have been put on such an incredible display. I have been the vanguard for sinners most of my life to show people how, how terrible and how wicked we can be and how rotten to the core we are. Where if you knew me, if you really knew me, you wouldn't want to know me. And if I knew you, if I really 
knew you, I probably wouldn't want to know you either. And, um, and as Jeff said in his sermon this morning, but God knows all about that. He knows how we're onto the core we are, yet he still draws near to us. He still comes near and he is pure and perfect. And yet we, we, um, we are revulsed by each other's sin and revulsed by each other's evil thoughts. And though God is aware of all these things, he still draws near to us. And what, what, an, what an incredible grace this is. So, um, so pure and perfect that God you know, actually does know these things. But unless God makes me his friend, Romans 5, chapter 10, unless God makes me his friend... I will choose to remain his enemy. That'll be my choice. And if I don't want a relationship with God for a short time on earth, as a Christian, as we call ourselves, if I don't want that, then I certainly do not want an eternity of a relationship with him either. So if I do not want this short time on earth, then why would I expect to want to have a relationship with him for eternity in heaven? That's not something I want. In my natural state, in my fallen state, I don't want a relationship with God anyway. I don't want it. I want him to leave me alone and let me be. That's what I want. But when we look at the timeline of history and we say from, say, from the beginning, from day one through to whenever Christ returns and, and restores his kingdom, when, when all that happens, you know, if you look at yourself, you're not even a dot registering on the scale of history. But the problem is that once you're born, you can be dead the rest of that time. So here's your life. It didn't even register as a blip on the scale of history. But, oh, hang on, but I'm, I'm dead a lot longer than I was ever alive. So I want to be alive in Christ rather than dead in my sins. So, because an eternity is a long time to be wrong. It's a long time to be without relationship with the Lord. We suffer. Okay, John three eighteen twenty. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Listen to this that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So the Lord, understanding how much I truly love darkness rather than light, will give me that which I covet the most. He will give me the darkness. An eternity free of his love, an eternity free of his blessings, so I won't want those things in my fallen state. I truly don't. In my natural state, I want nothing to do with God and I certainly don't want anything to do with his salvation or his Christ. I don't. Not in my natural state because I am hostile to God. In my natural state, I am bitter. I don't want him. I don't want him in, me, in my life at all. But people will also say to me, well, what about the Jehovah's Witness? And what about the Mormons? Now, they talk about Jesus and they love him and they worship him and surely you've got to see that they've got a similar destination to you. And I say, no, how can that be? They don't believe the, the God of the Scriptures. This is not the God of the Bible. I don't know who their Jesus is, but he is a counterfeit Christ. They are worshipping an idol and they don't know it. So I can't, I can't speak for that. And, I, and regardless of their sincerity, if I'm sincere about this piece of wood here and I worship it and I, I sacrifice it to every day and I polish it and I take good care of this wood, it's not going to save me in judgment day because my salvation is only safe in the object with whom I have placed my salvation. And this isn't going to save me. This will burn. And therefore so will I. Only Christ can save us. There is no salvation outside of Christ. Okay, the problem is, even though 
I go to a place without a relationship with God, it is unfortunate for me at this point, though God has given me what I want, but you know, I don't have to have a relationship with him and I don't want any of his benefits, but how unfortunate for me that I'm still going to a place of his fashioning and that I will have to get on my knees and for eternity cry out that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is in Philippians 9, uh, sorry, Philippians chapter 2, 9 to 11. I will be brought to my knees and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. But myself and I think like everyone here has been given eternal life because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Salvation, even though sin's been my idea, God's salvation, that's his idea. So saving me was his idea, rebelling from him is my idea. I remember one time a bird got caught in my pool and um, I tried to save it and every time I tried it kept going away from me and I was reaching out for it with, the, with, the, um, with my broom trying to get it on and every time it got away from me it started drowning. The only way I could save this bird was by jumping in there, getting wet in my clothes. It was a really cold time too and, um, and I, I freed that bird from drowning. Did it thank me? Probably doesn't even remember me. But I saved it that day at great cost to myself, I might say. I chafed and everything else, freezing cold. But the thing is that, but when we look at it, that's what Jesus did as well. He, he came down to our level. He got in the muck and in the mire for us that we wouldn't have to experience what he went through on the cross. So, so the whole idea of salvation is God's idea. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, not only am I going to be spared from getting what I deserve, but I'm going to get what he deserves. Righteousness and glory with the Father. You know, um, Ezekiel chapter 18, 20 to 32. Jordan spoke about this this morning too. Good on you, Jordan. So it says here in Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 18, 20 to 32, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from his sins, which he has committed, and keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. And then God says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All of the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair, Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your way which is not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he has committed, He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair. 
O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Therefore I will judge you. O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live. So here we have it again. Death is something that our, uh, I mean, sorry, sin is something that our actions demand. Okay? I mean, death is something our actions demand. From, from our sin, the wages which we have, we have earned, um, it's like when I, when I, you know, when I work each week, I expect to be paid. So if I'm sinning, I'm expecting to be paid for it. And that is death. But I wonder, when we look at Ezekiel, where God puts it on Ezekiel's heart to plead for the lost, and I wonder sometimes how much the church has lost that pleading with people. Because if we knew that today was the last day, I'm pretty sure that all pretense would be gone, all bets would be off, because we would be pleading with people, you know, saying, you've got to turn, you've got to, you've got to repent, you've got to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. And if they, if they ignore you, you move on to the next person. But, you know, I want to impress upon all of us, you know, a sense of pleading when we talk to people. Let's get off our high horse and say, look, please turn, please, I'm begging you. Doesn't matter what, you know, it doesn't matter how we say it, because God will do good things with whatever we say. If we are, if we are truly saying them honestly and contritely, if we, if we are truly praying to God, if we are truly living a life in submission to Him. But even if you're not living in a life of pure submission to Him, because none of us really can, we try, but we do fail. But whatever you say to someone, you know, talking to them about Jesus, it's okay, because God can still use that. Don't be afraid to venture out. I do it all the time at work and I do it whenever I can talking to people about God. It was not God's idea originally to punish us any more than it is a parent's idea to want to punish their kids for being obedient. That was not God's idea. But even today, people accuse God of being unfair, don't they? Um, but God, being pure and perfect, he must destroy all evil and wickedness. Because he is completely just, totally incorruptible, perfect and absolutely pure. Because the fear of the Lord, Psalm 111, verse 10, is the beginning of wisdom. And without that, no matter how wise I get, if I don't have that strong foundation of fearing God first, all the wisdom up top is going to start wobbling. I need to start here. And if this is as far as I ever get, just fearing God, knowing that's the beginning of wisdom, then that's good enough for me. So what is hell like? We've discussed what hell isn't, but now let's talk a little bit about what hell is. It is everlasting. Isaiah chapter 33, 14, Jeremiah 17, 4. Don't ever let anyone say that the Bible doesn't echo into hell or talk about hell in the Old Testament because it's not true. It's not a New Testament idea. It's always been around. Um, number two, it is the place of fire and burning. Matthew 18, 8 and Jude 7. Number three, it is the place of contempt. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Look, another Old Testament reference. Um, number four, it is the place of destruction and devoid of God's blessings. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. Number five, it is the place of torment. Revelation 14, 11. Number six, it is the place of darkness. 2 Peter chapter 2, 17. Number seven, it is the place of varying degrees of punishment. Now, we actually... Um, um, when the elders were talking and they were talking about hell and various, various degrees of punishment, um, that came up then, which is really good. But we do have references to that in the Bible too. Matthew 
chapter 11, 21 to 24, and also Luke 12, 47 to 48. Feel free to read them. Um, now, and number eight, there are many more, but I just want to, I want to close it here. But um, number eight, it is the place of eternal punishment, Matthew 25:46. Okay, so this, basically, this is a place that I really don't want to go to. I've got to tell you. Now, whether you take these descriptions literally or symbolically, that's, that's up to you, but please take them seriously. That's what's most important that you take them seriously, that this is a place you want to avoid at all costs because the full measure of God's wrath is poured out in this place from all that we've seen of what God's done to his people in the past and, and to what he has done to people who have disobeyed him. That's nothing compared to what's coming. Like um, John the Baptist said, flee the wrath to come, you know, and telling people to repent. So... Um, so I've got to ask this question to myself and it's probably something I, I did ask years and years ago um, to a teacher and he was, he was a very smart man. Because so I said, is it fair to say, let's say I'm born and I only commit one punishment, I mean one sin. Yeah, right. Um, would it be fair that just because I've committed one lousy sin that I should go to hell? And, and, um, and this teacher said to me, absolutely. I said, why? He said, well, if you remain unrepentant, then your sin continues because in your unrepentant heart, you're still continuing to sin. He said, you know, and it's true because, you know, even though I've committed what seems to be a finite crime, I've committed it, I've committed that crime against an infinite God. So therefore, God seeing my heart knows my continued rebellion to him. So it's, it's like saying, how many banks do I need to rob to be called a bank robber? Because I'm only going to rob one bank. So, and it's the same thing. We only need to do one sin and that's it. The game's over. Um, so, um, so before I continue, because I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about, just in brief, about people who've maybe never had the opportunity to hear the word, maybe never heard about Jesus or salvation through Christ. But before I continue, and I've said this to a couple of you here, but I want to say it now too, because I want you to remember this as we continue on, is that God owes us nothing. God owes you absolutely nothing. He owes me nothing. He owes us nothing. Okay? That's the most important thing. And, number, and, and another, another thing to remember is that Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are qualified for heaven anyway. So whether we hear God's word or not, it doesn't matter because I've got to tell you, people have got Bibles in their homes and they know their Bible and they're still going to hell. So if God saves, he will save. So regardless of whether people have heard or not or people talk about the Native Americans, it's not fair, the settlers hadn't come in, they hadn't heard the word of God, it doesn't matter, we've all sinned. We have all forfeited eternal life with him. So the, the question one woman asked me, uh, one time when I was doing evangelism in Salisbury, and she said to me, she was a Christian woman, and she said to me, well, why is it that God saves some and not others? And, and you know, this is a really good question, but it, 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 it comes from a misunderstanding of, of understanding how pure God is and how depraved we are, because my response to her was just in the form of a question saying, why does God save any of us? That was the, that, that was the best answer I could think of. Why? Why does he save you and me? What do we have to offer him? And she's still like, oh, yeah, never thought of it that way before. I said, me neither. Now we've got something new to think about. So anyway, because we've all sinned. 
Romans, uh, sorry, Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 to 14, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So everyone is going to know how guilty they are before God, not just standing before him in his purity and in his righteousness, but God's going to say, here's why. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 14. Steve, I'm sorry, this is actually the last verse in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. I'm stealing your thunder, but I'm taking it. I'm taking I know. For God, for God will bring every work into judgment, including, and this terrifies me if, if, I, if I was facing judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And, and the, the thing about good and evil, even though, hey, Lord, but look, I did these good things as well. But those good things will actually serve to condemn me because God thinks, so you knew what was right. I'm like, oh, yeah, I did. You knew what was righteous. How less of excuse do I have? So the good things that we do, that we pat our back for, helping that little old lady across the road, which is really great, very commendable, but it makes me feel pretty good about myself, actually going to work against me. They're going to actually stand as testimony against me. For all those, so I'm digging myself as, as a sinner, I'm digging myself a deeper hole by being good. Because it's all self-righteousness at that point. So, and dare I say, I'm saying, look, I'm going to get into hell. Lord, thanks for the cross, but I won't need it. I'm going to do it my way. What an insult. Luke chapter 12, um, 2 to 3 says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be made known. This is terrifying. If I'm not a Christian, I am terrified as I read these. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have spoken in the ear, in inner rooms, how secret is whispering, okay, will be proclaimed on the housetops. Oh, and here's another one. And I've just seen this with whole new eyes recently as well. Romans chapter 2, um, verses 14 to 16, for when the Gentiles, you know this, you probably know this one very well, for when Gentiles, that's probably all of us here, who do not have the law, by nature do things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the law of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So there we go. So basically what, I, what I'm leading up to here is saying there is no ignorant suffering in hell. There's no one in hell saying, why am I here? Uh, I, just, I, just, I died and now I'm here. This doesn't seem fair. Everybody who is in hell, if there's any consolation in hell, it is this and it is only this that you know why you're in hell and you know you deserve to be there. That's the only consolation hell has, is knowing that you deserve what you're going to get. So, and finally, just because you, like we talked about before, just because you have the testimony of God's written word doesn't make you any safer than those who don't have it. Um, in, uh, In Luke chapter 16, when we talk about the rich man and Lazarus, okay, now, these would have both been men who had access to the scripture, okay? 
And that's pretty abundant when we, when we get to the end of that. I don't believe this is a parable. I believe this actually happened. I believe Jesus is actually telling of a story that actually happened because it doesn't, it doesn't fit parabolic language. Anyway, but that's one side. But the rich man says to Abraham, he says, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham knocks him over with this. This, this is the knockout blow. He says, but he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So if we do not believe what is in here, how can we be expected to believe that one should rise from the dead? And the man who, who told this story is the one who did rise from the dead. Jesus Christ, who has suffered and died, and who has made satisfaction on our behalf, that we could be saved. So the, the very thought that God comes in flesh, that he lives amongst us, and then stands in harm's way for those who hate him, for those who are naturally his enemies, is unfathomable to me. But again, sin was my idea. Righteous salvation and mercy was God's idea. That's his. That was his initiative. So, anyway, let's start wrapping things up now. Revelation chapter 14, 9 to 10. Then a third angel, Revelation chapter 14, 9 to 10. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, and here it is, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So, we find here that hell is the perfect place for punishment. Sin is finally dealt with and destroyed. You see, even now we know, we know that sin is defeated. With what Jesus did on the cross, sin is defeated, but it's not yet destroyed. We, and we see that. We see that abundantly around us. But it is defeated because of what he's done. But hell also demonstrates God's hatred towards sin. Hell is... I can't even believe I'm saying this. Hell is ultimately a good place because God made it and it serves a good purpose. It consequently satisfies God's perfect justice. Hell is the conclusion and the final place of God's perfect anger. It all culminates there. And God's anger is good. God's anger is righteous. It is pure. It is perfect. And if that's the case, then this place of wrath and indignation which is befitting for all of us to go to, is actually a good place. And I'd never really thought about it like that before, and I thought, but yeah, because we, we, we talk so much about God's love and his, and his joy and his peace, and, and these are great things to talk about, and this is so true. God is love, but God is also a God of justice. We need to keep the scales balanced. So important. Anyway, um, it says in Isaiah... 45, 18-25 For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it and did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret and in a dark place of the earth I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. 
I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. That's kind of us, really. We've escaped from the nations. We, we have congregated to the Lord. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a just God and a saviour. There is none beside me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I think God's really trying to... Do you see a theme coming along here? I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against God. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and have glory. Now before I close, I just want to... I remember um, hearing a preacher one time and he said it and he said it so well and it, and it still stuck with, stuck with me is that he said when there's a bushfire on the best place to stand is where the fire has already gone through because there's no fuel left so the fire's not going to come back that way. And the only place that we have safety because God's judgment is going to cover all his creation and has already passed over Christ and that is the only safe place. There is no fuel for burning there anymore because he has taken our sins. If we truly love him, if he has truly called us and we are truly his, then we stand in that place where the fire is already gone and he is the only safe place for us to stand. So when that fire comes, when those flames of perdition rise again and where people are sent to hell, that is not the place for you and me because Jesus experienced God forsakenness that we wouldn't have to. Remember when he, says to, when he says to the Father, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice he doesn't call him Father at that point. There is that separation. He's still his God, but he's, the, 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 the intimate relationship was broken at that point. This had never happened in history, in all eternity, and will never happen again, but it happened at that point for you and me, that we wouldn't have to be God forsaken. And that is the only place we're ever going to be safe throughout all history and throughout all the creation both in this dimension and the next, within the entire cosmos, the only place that we are safe is in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4.12 Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's pretty much where I want to draw to a close. And if I've probably raised more questions than I've, than I've been able to answer, that's good, that means you're thinking. So that's, that's good too. So let's pray and we'll, we'll bring it to a close. <clears throat> Father God, we have come here today as your children, Lord. We are just so thankful for the grace you have given us. Lord, we've, we've been discussing the thing that we get to avoid, Lord, your judgment, because it has been poured out in full strength on our, on our blessed Saviour, Jesus Christ, so that we do not have to experience God-forsakenness, that we can go forward in the future with the confidence that you are our Saviour and our God. So, Lord, as we go from this place, Lord, help us to keep in mind the things that you have put in our hearts, Lord. Help us to 
grow stronger and close with you each day, Lord. Help us to give answers to those who ask questions. Help us to be brave speaking to people, Lord. And Lord, if we're not brave enough, we're just thankful that even through our frail words, you can still use us. You can still plant seeds of righteousness in people, Lord, that they would turn to you. So God, we just thank you for this evening and just bless us as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name, amen.